Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. It is time for us to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. Today we're joined by Bloomberg Opinion columnist Kathy O'Neill. She's a mathematician and also a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. I want to talk about higher education as uh, the father of two college-age students, myself, uh, Lisa, you know, it's really an issue here. We're paying full tuition, yet they're not getting the on-campus classroom experience and they're kind of calling into question the value proposition there. So, Kathy, thanks so much for joining us here. What do you think is the future, at least in the near term, of some of these decisions parents and students and colleges need to make about pricing what is a much, much different experience? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking right now at this Chronicle of Higher Education website that says that two-thirds, full two-thirds of colleges are still claiming that they're going to have in-person classes in the fall. I just don't think that's realistic. I think the ones that have copped to remaining online for the fall, which is at only at 6% right now, are being much more honest with their students and parents. And for, for now, we're just playing a game of chicken. We have uh, parents and students who are strapped for cash, we have colleges who desperately, desperately need the tuition money. And that first tuition payment, as I'm sure you know, is coming due in a month or two. And they're just not going to tell us, it feels like. I also have two college students at home. Um, they feel like they're just not going to tell us what the actual situation is until they get that tuition payment, which doesn't seem like a good deal for us. Well, and it seems like increasingly parents are wondering about the value proposition. And my kids are younger than college age, but I'm a little bit nervous looking at how quickly the inflation uh, has occurred in college price tags. I'm wondering what the pandemic and the disruption to in-class attendance might mean in terms of colleges going out of business if parents do decide not to pay the bills or uh, potentially a rejiggering of more kind of technical colleges versus uh, liberal arts educations? What do you think? Well, exactly. And I think the, basically the, the value proposition has been for the last few dozen years that it's not just an education. It's a sort of certificate for the middle class or for certificate for a better than a middle class job, depending on which college you go to. So, so parents have been shelling out more and more and more and, and have, as have students not simply for the education, but also for the experience, for the socializing, for the connections, if you will, to uh, good jobs afterwards. And if it's online, you clearly don't have all of that. You don't have the on-campus experience, et cetera. And to be clear, colleges have been cashing in on this holistic approach to what they're offering just as much as parents have been buying into it. So it's it's just simply not about education. And I and I hesitate to say this because I have many, many friends who are professors who are working their tails off in order to deliver as good an education as they possibly can in the context of online. And it's not, not to say that they're not doing a really good job, but that's really not the only thing we're paying for when we pay for college. And so the question is, what will happen next? And I really do think if it becomes online, then people will say, wait, if it's just about education, I'm simply not willing to pay this. So, Kathy, I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned tuition, how the colleges really need tuition. And I think not so much about the really big universities, well-known universities that have big endowments and that can perhaps weather the storm a little bit. I'm thinking about the this maybe the second and third tier colleges and universities that really don't have those endowments and therefore really rely on funding their operating budget with tuition. What are those schools going to do? 
I think there's going to be a lot of liberal arts schools, the ones that really like remain like sort of rely heavily on this in local parentis concept um, that we're going to be, you know, there for your kids and it's going to be a full fledged liberal arts education. Those schools that rely that don't have a huge endowment are going to go out of business. I expect to see a whole a huge slew of colleges just closing shop in the next couple of years because of this disruption. Kathy, have you heard any of Scott Galloway's comments, the NYU professor who's been going on the airwaves and saying that basically a lot of colleges should go out of business, that they're overpriced and that finishing schools essentially or the Ivy Leagues will continue because they are sort of artificially propping up their value. I mean, he basically was comparing them to Gucci scarves. But I'm wondering, (laughs) I mean, are you going to see this increasing bifurcation among the Ivy League and everyone else as everyone else tries to justify the finishing school aspect? aspect of their business, sort of as you described, the holistic experience? Yeah, I mean, I hope so. And, and what, I, what I really hope is that whatever we replace this in, with is less expensive um, and less, like, arduous for Amen. the <laughs> and for the parents. And, I, you know, like, look, there has to be some way to decide what job who gets, right? It's a sorting mechanism, but it's just an unbelievably expensive sorting mechanism. So my hope would be that we really do figure out a way um, that that works. Um, You know, look at the German model with an enormous amount of apprenticeships, for example, where there aren't that many uh, sort of university-educated students um, relative to the number of students that take sort of apprenticeships after after high school. There's nothing wrong with that model, except we don't do it whatsoever. Um, so if we could find a reasonable system that isn't nearly as expensive, that gets people um, jobs sooner and less long-term student debt, that would be fantastic. Kathy O'Neill, thank you so much. And uh, from your lips to the higher education's <laughs> ears ahead of my children having to go to college, Kathy O'Neill, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, a mathematician who has been a professor, uh, as well as a hedge fund analyst and data scientist and author of Weapons of Math Destruction. Definitely something on the forefront of our minds, the price of college education, which has absolutely skyrocketed in relation to everything else, raising a lot of questions, especially given the student debt load right now that we're seeing come into the focus. Focus, Paul. Yeah, it's really interesting. And again, those uh, fall uh, semester payments are coming up. And I'm wondering if there's going to be any pricing adjustment here for what is a very different product that we're getting now versus uh, what we initially signed up for. Well, the up and down relationship between the U.S. and China seems to be uh, approaching another low, this time due to the new security laws that China uh, has imposed on Hong Kong and a response from the U.S. has not been positive, to say the least. Michael Herson, uh, practice head at China and at Northwest Asia for the Eurasia Group, joins us. Michael, thanks so much for your time here. wonder for our listeners if you could just summarize what these new security laws are in Hong Kong and maybe why China is doing it now. Sure. So China announced on Friday that its legislature, the National People's Congress, will implement this law rather than go through Hong Kong's own legislature. And this has been a long, decades-long sticking point, in fact, uh, Hong Kong establishing a national security law. And Beijing had left that to Hong Kong to take care of, but basically ran out of patience. And there have been waves of protest over the last year and and even earlier over uh, Hong Kong proposing this legislation on its own. So essentially, Beijing said, time is up. We're going to do this for you uh, under its own interpretation of the law 
that governs China's China, mainland China's relationship with Hong Kong. Now, what the law actually does is, well, first off, I should say we won't know the details because the law has not been drafted yet, and that will likely be something that happens over the course of the summer. But essentially, it gives uh, likely some fairly broad powers for uh, Beijing to extend its authority over Hong Kong in areas that it regards as uh, anti-government and treasonous activity. A lot of people are saying that the U.S. should and will step in. We've seen Congress come out and threaten to take action, including potentially revoking the special trading status that the U.S. has with Hong Kong. What does China stand to lose if Hong Kong loses some of its special status with respect to its reputation financially around the world? Well, I think for China, the economic importance of Hong Kong has diminished quite a bit relative to the size of China's economy. So I think the biggest threat for China at this point would be if these actions create fundamental financial instability in Hong Kong. That would be bad and could have ripple effects for China's economy and financial system. But generally speaking, losing Hong Kong's vitality as a global business hub is not positive for China, but it doesn't represent any kind of systemic risk. I think it's fair to say that mainland China has has moved on beyond that. So, Michael, does realistically, does Hong Kong have any recourse here? Uh, Hong Kong, I, I think, to be blunt, no, not really. And of course, Hong Kong's government is, at this point, the, the administration of Carrie Lam is moving essentially in lockstep with Beijing. So really, the question mark at this point is not so much uh, whether or not Hong Kong has recourse, but as you suggested, what the U.S. response is. There's also a question about other power grabs that China is making right now. There was a $1.4 trillion investment program in its technological infrastructure that they announced. They've been trying to get a vaccine through faster than the United States. What's behind this at this point? And is China getting the upper hand? Well, I think there are some areas that you could call this a power grab, but there are other areas where China is just behaving opportunistically. The world is in crisis. China is more stable than a lot of other countries. And so it's it's looking to gain an edge. And I think that's the case with the stimulus program and the investment in a lot of these strategically important sectors that you mentioned. Um, generally speaking, China is trying to use the crisis to expand its influence. Uh, And it would do that through vaccine diplomacy, uh, through the assistance that it's already offered to countries uh, for medical supplies. And yes, I think it's fair to say that China sees this as an opening, especially at a time when when China's economy is recovering earlier than most other large economies to really expand its influence. So I wonder if you could just give us a sense of the the health and the strength of the presidency of President Xi, uh, given the COVID crisis, pandemic, given the impact to the Chinese economy, given that some, you know, international uh, condemnation, perhaps China was somehow involved in the you know, origination of, of this pandemic. What's the standing of the president right now? I think right now his footing is quite secure. In fact, you could even make the case that for now, she emerges stronger from this. And it's because of China's ability to contain the virus and to recast the narrative at home by showing that the party has been successful, his leadership has been successful, 
whereas the U.S. and the West has had a far more fumbling response to the pandemic. Now, I don't think that means he's out of the woods. Unemployment is rising in China. I think it's going to be a quite gradual recovery. But what it means is that to strengthen himself, she will continue to ramp up patriotic sentiment at home and, and portray China's success, whereas others have failed. And that is going to mean that these issues like Hong Kong, like disputes with the U.S. over Taiwan, over the South China Sea, all of these, I think, are going to stay at quite a high temperature and it means real risks for the relationship now through the election. This is what I don't really understand. It seems like mar- markets are shrugging off the prospect of an escal- escalating trade war or cold war between the U.S. and China. And yet it seems like things are escalating. What's the tipping point at which it really will bleed over into the global economic recovery? I think it's a very good point. I think markets tend to focus on the issue of tariffs because those are the most visible and easy to quantify in terms of tensions. And our view at this point, and it's not a it's not a firm conviction, but we think that the phase one deal will last through this year because neither side has the incentive to, to reescalate on trade. We put that at about 60 percent. So I think the markets should be aware that there's a risk of it breaking down, but they also need to keep in mind that non-tariff measures that are harder to price in are, I think, having a very significant impact. I mean, things like U.S. restrictions against Huawei, new U.S. restrictions against a further set of uh, Chinese technology companies, the tensions that we're seeing in Hong Kong, these do have significant impacts on the global economy. They're just harder to price in. And I think markets may be missing that. Michael Herson, thank you so much for being with us. Michael Herson, practice head of the China and Northeast Asian regions for Eurasia Group, joining us based in New York, definitely in the forefront as these escalating tensions, yet markets just don't yep. care, Paul. No, the market, it just appears, as we've been discussing this morning, uh, Lisa, really focusing on the pandemic. What stage are we in the pandemic? And uh, I think the market's obviously looking forward a little bit and seeing some gradual reopening around the globe, including here in the United States. And, and that's where the bet is. Yeah, people are hoping for a world that returns to something more normal than what we've all been experiencing. One of the big stories over the past few months has been an unprecedented surge in borrowing, and that's from investment-grade companies uh, that have sold a record more than a trillion dollars of bonds so far year to date. This just raises all sorts of questions to me. Yes, they're investment grade, but yes, they are adding leverage in a quest to just get as much cash onto their belt to survive through this next period. Joining us now is someone who buys some of that debt, Josh Lohmeyer, head of North American investment grade credited Aviva Investors, which oversees $438 billion firm-wide, enjoys us from Chicago. Josh, have you been out there seeing opportunities and some of this new issuance at a time of so much uncertainty. Yeah, we really have. I mean, you, you mentioned it, a, over a trillion dollars of new issuance during a period of unprecedented volatility. There will always be you know, opportunities to find value in that kind of environment. So, Josh, kind of give us a sense here. You know, given where we are in the credit and in, in the economic cycle, are you concerned that risk assets have gotten a little bit ahead of them Selves, I mean, it's sure to have just more and more economic pain to come uh, across the economy. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. And I think, you know, if, if we just uh, think briefly back to the last recession, the global financial crisis, you had the first iteration of, 
you know, wobbling of volatility around Bear, Bear Stearns in the first quarter of 2008. And then, you know, Lehman Brothers in the in the majority of the volatility we didn't feel till the fourth quarter of 2008. And so I think any recession or recessionary environment is going to feel a lot more like a roller coaster. Maybe that first hill is the biggest and the most scarier, perhaps. And then we we hit different peaks and valleys throughout. But I, th- I think we are at the early stages of this recession, and it's going to take some time to really figure out how deep the damage is done and how quickly we can recover. Well, how worried are you about the fact that companies that are worried about their futures, worried about future revenues, have started to add leverage, have started to reduce uh, the sort of emphasis on deleveraging and shoring up their balance sheets right now? Has that affected what you decide to buy? It really does. And if you think about it right now, and this is the whole market, is really just focused on can things survive? A lot of this reaction function of, of just adding as much debt as they can to preserve liquidity is a, is a survival technique. And I, I just want to get through the next couple of quarters. And that's fine. But the reality is, is when you do start to recover, when economies do start to open back up, now what we have, what we will have to worry about then is what are the second derivative impacts of all of this? Because now, best case scenario, we enter a shallow recession. And when you enter a shallow recession and companies are a half a turn, one turn, two turned higher leverage into that slower growth, shallow recession, it's you start to have to worry about their ability to earn their way out of that larger hole, if you will. So what are you, are you seeing in terms of credit quality across your portfolio? We've seen a couple of bankruptcies uh, just over the last several weeks. Give us a snapshot of kind of the, where you think uh, the credit quality is in uh, the space you look at. Yeah, so there's, you know, there's going to be a lot of situations where, you know, we all, we all can see, you know, real estate, uh, retail sectors are some of the biggest, uh, you know, on the very front lines of this and other sectors like telecom and cable um, and certain areas of healthcare and even packaged goods where you're not really as impacted because you're actually getting some tailwinds from this environment. And so what we're really thinking through is who does have, who, who is less impacted, who is the most impacted. And for the ones that are the most impacted, you know, you can start to feel how big of a drop in their ratings are they going to have as you start to project out significantly reduced earnings and revenues relative to these higher debt metrics. And that's kind of all the hard credit work that needs to go into making decisions in, over the next two quarters. So let's uh, talk about where you're seeing opportunities. What have you actually been buying recently? You don't, I know you don't want to talk specific securities, but if you could talk sectors, types of ratings, et cetera, that would be awesome. Yeah, I think one, one important strategy we've deployed over the last couple of months is really to go down in quality into some of the sectors that we feel have been least impacted. And I mentioned some telecom and cable as as an area where that that can work, including some healthcare. And then going up in quality in some of the sectors that are most impacted, i.e. in the energy space, focusing more on the high, up in quality integrated companies or the stronger midstream credits where you have much more uh, forward-looking or they have more levers they can pull to reduce leverage as well as a bit clearer cash flow guidance in the current environment for commodity prices. And so kind of barbelling your risk in that regard is a way to keep some uh, beta in your portfolio while avoiding the lowest echelons of quality in some of the most impacted sectors. 
What kind of returns are you looking for, given the pretty significant returns that we've seen? I mean, just to give people a perspective, so far in May, investment-grade bonds in the United States have returned 10.8%. I mean, it's been a dramatic increase, and it's been both on the rate side as well as on the credit spread side. Is it basically a coupon-clipping exercise from here? I think so. I think we've, you know, if you just looked at the credit spreads on the market as a whole, it's still wider than, you know, um, the tights we've seen even year to date by by a pretty meaningful amount. And so as the market recovers longer term, you can still see value in the compression of spreads. I think rates have come down a ton, so you probably won't get as much of a kicker from a rally in just broad interest rates. And spreads are still wide, but I think spreads are more fairly and accurately reflecting the risks we still have in front of us. And so there's not going to be easy money left on the table, per se, from a spread compression perspective or a yield drop perspective. And so now we're back in that period where things might be fair, more fairly valued with lots of uncertainty. And the expectation is we're going to see some more volatility here over the next coming quarters. So, Josh, I know, again, you don't uh, want to talk about individual, individual securities, but Macy's is uh, just out with some news that they're going to try to tap the markets for $1.1 billion, and they're going to use their real estate as collateral. What do you think of that structure? Is that is that something that's common for the retail space, or is this something unique, reflecting uh, very unique times? I think it's unique because it, it might not be that uncommon for high-yield or leveraged credits, but for investment-grade credits, it's clearly a lot less common. And I think this is kind of back to that, uh, that point we talked about earlier around companies in survival mode. And one of the biggest risks to unsecured debt holders, which are most of the investment grade bonds out there, are the ability of credits when they do see periods of stress to prime your debt, which what that means is put secured debt in front of your unsecured debt. And so what that means is if this if this works, if this ends up working out for someone like Macy's and gets them through this crisis so that they can grow at some point in the future, then everybody's going to be okay. But if something doesn't happen with these types of credits in these situations, that that increases your tail risk and reduces your uh, return on a in a bankruptcy scenario or your recovery rate. Because you're now you now have another debt holder with security on their real estate ahead of you that wasn't there before. So it's not a good thing for the investment grade market, unless of course it works out uh, in the end. <laughs> Josh Lomar, <laughs> thanks so much uh, for joining us. Josh uh, is head Thank of you. North American Investment Grade Credit at Aviva Investors. Talking all things across the credit spectrum, uh, Lisa. What's interesting talking about some of these lenders we're seeing come to the market, like a Macy's. Uh, you know, really trying to get creative and innovative to, to really shore up the balance sheets, but it is certainly a risky time for credit investors. One of the most creative parts of the market has been the cruise liners, and some of them have put islands up for sale. I think Norwegian <laughs> Cruise Lines put an island up, uh, not for sale, for, for collateral, collateral, for some of their bond sales, and we've seen them put up cruise ships, and we've seen this, of course, in the airline industry as well, uh, with United not gaining traction because people didn't necessarily want the aircraft they pledged as collateral. Uh, they thought that those those airline aircrafts were not valuable enough, but it just highlights the desperation, right? How do you lure in new investors at a time when leverage is already high yeah. uh, at a time with such great economic uncertainty. Really a yep. question. 
It is. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to see the price action today in the market, certainly a risk on feel to the market. And, you know, it's just, I think the as you look across the Bloomberg terminal, looking at the news, a lot of it is just kind of uh, positive expectations for a gradual reopening of the economy and, and what that could mean for, uh, you know, the uh, economic statistics that have been so devastating uh, for the markets uh, over the last couple of months if we've, as we've come to grips with the economic impact from the pandemic. A lot of people are wondering, the Federal Reserve has done so much, what more can they do? And people are definitely looking at yield curve control, the idea of managing yields at all different maturities of treasuries is the next likely step for the U.S. Central Bank. Ira Jersey, Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Interest Rate Strategist joining us now. Ira, I'd love to get your take on what this will mean for bond traders if the Federal Reserve actually does this. How many more longer maturity bonds does the Federal Reserve have to buy? Well, they, they would have to buy a lot. I mean, the, the idea of yield curve control would be for the Federal Reserve basically to say, we're going to set this rate. Um, you know, maybe it's 30-year yields at 2% or maybe it's five-year yields at 1%, I mean, some number, and say, we're going to buy as many bonds as we need to in order to keep rates there. Um, I, I think initially the market would probably test the resolve of the Fed and say, well, let's see if you'll really do that. So initially, I think the Fed would have to buy a lot of bonds, you know, a couple of hundred billion probably uh, over a month or two. And then after that, they probably won't have to buy as much, primarily because the market now would know that if we get there, we know that there's going to be an active buyer. So, um, so, so we're not going to be, you know, very short the market. So, so I think it, it could be a pretty efficient way uh, for the Fed to do that. Now, the, the political challenge there is, is that, you know, does that mean that, um, you know, is the Federal Reserve doing this because it wants to keep government borrowing costs low? So, you know, is the separation of uh, the Federal Reserve and the, the federal government just blurred even further? And I think that that's a political challenge that it, uh, that the Fed will have to uh, ultimately have to uh, tell Congress, like, hey, you know, explain why they're doing this ex- exactly. So, Ira, um, I have not in my career seen this before. Um, is this market manipulation to some degree? Have we seen this before? Well, it is market manipulation for sure, but so is regular quantitative easing that the Fed's done on and off for the last uh, decade or so. Um, so, so yeah, in, in the 1940s and 50s during World War II, the Federal Reserve capped 30-year uh, government bond yields at 2.5%. So, um, so, so this is not unprecedented in the U.S. Um, in Japan, they did the same type of yield curve control um, idea. Of course, their, their interest rates were even much lower than ours are now, but the, the, the Japanese did it for the better part of three or four years. So, um, so, so it's 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 another tool in the toolbox. And basically, the the important thing that I think something like yield curve control would say is is firstly, we don't want long term interest rates to go much higher because if they do, that could be detrimental to the economy because you have the rollover of corporate debt, for example, or people getting mortgages. Um, we don't want those interest rates to go high because that could have a detrimental effect on the economy. Um, but at the same time. Um, the uh, it, it's in it, the, the Federal Reserve doesn't want to have to do some other draconian type of things like uh, cut uh, the Fed funds rate into negative territory, which might uh, which they might have to do if they don't do something like yield curve control or more massive quantitative easing like they did back in March. 
If they do yield curve control and considering the fact that they've purchased about 70%, the maximum of what they can purchase of longer term bond issuances recently from the Treasury Department, how big do you think their balance sheet could get in the next year? Yeah, so so I mean, we've we've been forecasting that the Fed's balance sheet will get well over ten trillion dollars. Um, now, now, part of that is also predicated was predicated on some uh, uh, well over a trillion dollars of some of these other uh, facilities, and it seems like maybe those other facilities, like the credit facilities, for example, won't get quite as large as we initially thought. Um, primarily because of of what's happened in the markets and where credit spreads have gone over the past couple of months uh, or the past couple of weeks, I should say. Um, the uh the the even though the the fed owns 70% of a lot of bonds they still there's a lot of off the run securities that they don't own that many of yet so they still have plenty of room to buy um, to buy a significant amount of maturities, and of course, the the Fed, uh, the Treasury Department is also issuing a lot of new securities as well. So you know they just issued a new 20-year. The Fed doesn't own any of those. They they're going to issue a new. Uh, they just issued a new 30-year. The Fed also doesn't own any of those, although it will um, over the next couple of weeks. So you, you ha- they still have a lot of ability to buy a significant amount of bonds. So, Ira, give us. You mentioned that twenty-year uh, bond. Um, how did that go? Because that's a, a new security. Yeah, maturity. correct. So, so it's the first time that that the Treasury Department issued uh, a twenty-year bond, a new twenty-year since uh, nineteen eighty-six, and uh, it went pretty well actually. So, um, it, it came a, at at slightly higher yields than the market was expecting, but within a basis point. So, I, I call that noise. Anything. Within mm-hmm. a basis point, it's basically noise, and and it, and the bidder statistics went pretty well. So it had, um, you know, good demand from end user investors where people wanted to uh, wanted to own the security. Ira, thanks so much for joining us. As always, Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone. And Lisa, that's I think this is a new term for me: yield curve control. So I'm gonna have to well, brush up on that a little bit more. But uh, Bank it's, of Japan, it's just another tool, I guess. Bank of Japan's been doing this for a long time, and it raises a question about, frankly, liquidity in the bond market. When the Federal Reserve clamps down to such a degree and uh, sucks up such a significant portion of the outstanding debt, does this reduce liquidity in the existing bonds? What does this do to strategists? What does it do to yep. the whole industry of, of, of the bond market if it's completely controlled by the central bank? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And I'm not sure it's something, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of market participants have different views about it. But certainly, you know, we've given the Fed credit uh, since the beginning of this whole pandemic for taking decisive action, for taking early action. Uh, and this appears to be just another tool in their toolbox that they are prepared to use. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.